everyone, and welcome. I'm uh, Trevor Page, and I'll be chairing today's session. I have to say, it's a pleasure for me to be back on a SACPA podium, but I can claim no credit for organizing our speaker for this session. The credit there goes to Dwayne Pendergast. Haven't we been having some excellent SACPA sessions this year? I have to say, uh, I was going to, in fact, ask for that, a round of applause for Knud Peterson and his team of people who put the, their effort and time into organizing these sessions. So a round of applause, please, for the SAGPA board. There are so few of you that come to our annual general meetings that I thought I'd get this in now. So they know they're appreciated. Before introducing today's topic and speaker, uh, I do have to remind you that the session is being recorded. I also must uh, acknowledge our partner, the University of Lethbridge, for the support that they give us. And of course, as many of you know, the cost of today's session is still, and I underline still, $10 for the uh, session, including the lunch, whether you eat it or not. So please put the money in the basket on the table in front of you. Somebody please count it before the basket is collected. Our session today cuts right to the core of the manner in which our nation is being governed. Our speaker, Professor Dwayne Bratt, will discuss the constitutional aspects of the prorogation of Parliament, its use by previous governments, and its two most recent uses by Prime Minister Harper. These, of course, widespread outrage across the country. Professor Bratt received his PhD from the University of Alberta in 1996. He teaches political science uh, and public policy in the Department of Policy Studies at Mount Royal uh, University. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Professor Dwayne Bratt. Well, first off, I'd like to uh, thank uh, Dwayne Pendergast for inviting me down here. He got my commitment and, and then told me he would not be here himself, that he needed to uh, sunbathe on a beach someplace. Um, so I will remember that the next time I see uh, Dwayne. I want to talk about a few things. One is to explain for, for some of you in the audience who may not know what prorogation is, it's basically a suspension of, of Parliament and starting brand new. These are things that normally occur after an election, uh, but it's also a useful device for Prime Ministers uh, between elections. It leads to a new throne speech. It leads to new organizations of committees uh, and legislative councils. And it was very controversial this year when Stephen Harper did it. What wasn't controversial... Uh, were the 103 previous times that it has been done since 1867. And I think that's one of the things I want to focus on first, is why was it controversial? We saw demonstrations that occur. 
Um, usually when a proroguing occurs, there's some nasty editorials, uh, call-in show for a day, uh, and then it's over and people go back to sleep. But in this case, we actually saw people in the middle of winter show up and demonstrate. Uh, we have seen uh, the rise of social networking sites related to proroguing. And while that's easy to get, you know, 500,000 signatures online, it's much tougher to get tens of thousands of people to show up, and, and they did do that. Uh, I believe the first time in, in Canadian history. We've also seen the Conservatives take a bad hit in the, in the polls for doing this. So the question is, well, why is it controversial? Well, the first off, people would say, well, it's because it was directly partisan. It was a partisan move by the Prime Minister. And they'll say, well, it was done for two reasons. Uh, one that I think was more upfront, uh, but the second I think is, is what I see as the real reason for why Harper did this. The first is he was taking some heat back in December by a parliamentary committee dealing with the treatment of Afghan detainees. Uh, this caused some bad press for the government. It led to questions about the Department of Foreign Affairs as well as the Canadian forces. Uh, and by proroguing Parliament, what it did was it stopped the hearings and it will lead to um, a re reorganization of the committees. And if they want to start with new hearings, they can do so, but with different members, they'll have to start from scratch. And it gives them a bit of time for hopes that perhaps the issue dies away. But I don't see that as really what drove him. It may be part of the decision-making, but I don't see it as the major cause. And the reason for that is... I may be going on a limb here. I didn't see it as a major, serious issue to the government. We were dealing with something that happened back in 2007 and something that was solved in 2007. Um, and I'm not sure, you know, uh, I think some of the rhetoric was very overheated about somehow Stephen Harper was going to end up in the Hague on war crimes. Uh, no. Uh, this was some mistakes, and mistakes that have occurred dealing with the detainees pretty much since we've been in Afghanistan. Um, we, we saw issues back when Art Eglinton was defense minister. So while I think it was embarrassing, I'm not sure that would lead by itself to proroguing. What I think it was about was the Senate. You may notice during the break, uh, a couple people got what is referred to uh, as the tasteless thanks uh, to end up in the Senate. Uh, and they're all conservatives. Okay, not too surprising given that that's the way things work. Normally you appoint 10 or 11 senators and you'll have an independent or someone from across the aisle. Uh, but Harper is in a major battle with the Liberals over the Senate. By introducing these senators, it now gives the Conservatives a majority in the Senate. Well, that would have occurred with or without proroguing. But by proroguing, you stop the session in the Senate, new committees take over, and now the Conservatives dominate those committees in the Senate, which they wouldn't have done, even though they had a majority, in the absence of proroguing. So I think this was really about the Senate. So without a doubt, it was a partisan move by the Prime Minister. As were the other 103 times it was used. Uh, Jean Chrétien used it uh, to preempt the Auditor General delivering a report on the sponsorship crisis. He wanted to leave that to his good friend Paul Martin. Uh, and we saw the effects that that had. So it is a partisan tool. This is not surprising. This is a major power that the Prime Minister is going to use. Prime Ministers are political actors. They are going to act in a partisan way. So I asked myself why it was the issue if it wasn't really upset about partisan. I think it was a reaction to 2008's proroguing. Because there, 
uh, it was right before a non-confidence vote. The 2008 proroguing was much more controversial because it kept the government in power. They were going to fall. And that didn't mean that we were going to have a new election. We were going to have a new government. What saved the backlash on proroguing in 2008 was a other backlash to the idea of the liberal NDP block coalition taking power. And because of that, people gave Harper a pass on the proroguing. And then he did it again. And that, I think, ties it in. Is It's now becoming a Harper narrative. They're tying it into a larger picture that people have about Stephen Harper as a controlling prime minister, as someone who's now used it three times in four years in office. Uh, they see it with his, his treatment of, uh, of Linda Keene, of Kevin Page, of Richard Colvin, uh, of a whole series of, of opposition actors, bureaucrats. Uh, they see it in the lack of... Uh, being able to speak out, um, with the exception of, of Jim Flaherty and perhaps uh, Peter McKay and a bit of Stockwell Day, other ministers aren't allowed to speak without Harper's hand up their back. So I think it ties into a larger anti-Harper narrative, and I think that's where the opposition was coming from. Uh, I think, again, for those who have argued that he's the most controlling prime minister before, uh, didn't see how the PMO operated under I don't know, Trudeau, Mulroney, Cretchen, and, and Martin. Uh, this is just a tendency of prime ministers. I'm going to tell with that in a moment. The third aspect I want to raise is, while I think there was a nonpartisan aspect to the demonstrations in the opposition, I also believe it was the mobilization of groups who never supported Harper in the first place and were organized directly against him. Evidence of this, I think, is showing up to um, the demonstration in Montreal and getting a sign with the NDP logo on it showing up to the Toronto uh, demonstration with a union logo on it. So this was not just grassroots opposition, and, and there was some of that. Clearly there was some of that. But I think it was also an organized photo opportunity by groups uh, that were politically opposed to Harper today, yesterday, and tomorrow. Since the proroguing... Um, both Jack Layton and, and Michael Ignatiev have made some proposals to bring in new legislation preventing this from occurring. This will not work because proroguing is a constitutional convention. It's a power that the Prime Minister has going back hundreds of years in Britain and extending to Canada since Confederation. You can't change the Constitution through an act of Parliament. It requires uh, something more. And it's an unwritten part of the Constitution. Canada, unlike, for example, the United States, has both a written Constitution, the 1982 Constitution Act, but also an unwritten Constitution dealing with customs and traditions. And that's what proroguing is. So to change that would actually involve explicitly changing the written Constitution to prevent that. And if anybody in this room wants to walk through constitutional reform, um, please leave now. <laughs> what I see, the proroguing is, is a symptom of two much larger trends in Canadian politics. And it's these two larger trends that we somehow have to get a handle on. And what has happened is proroguing is the result of these two vectors colliding. Vector number one has been the growing concentration of prime ministerial power. This has been going on for decades, but I would really time it to the early Trudeau years. Uh, 
And what do I mean by the concentration of power? The full cabinet rarely meets anymore. Instead, it's a series of one-on-one meetings between the Prime Minister and the Cabinet. The Prime Minister of Canada domestically has more power than almost any other democratically elected leader we can think of. He appoints the Supreme Court. There is no confirmation as there is in the United States. He appoints all ministers, removes those ministers. Um, He uh, is the focus of leadership campaigns, is the focus of election campaigns. You'll often hear people saying, well, I'm voting for Stephen Harper or I'm voting against Stephen Harper. Well, unless you're in a specific riding in Calgary, nobody is voting for or against Stephen Harper. But we have seen the personalization of this. Now, you compare it to previous decades um, of, under Pearson or King, and yes, they were powerful prime ministers, but there were also independent power bases, very powerful cabinet ministers, you know, a, a C.D. Howe, for example. We don't see that today. So there's this been growing concentration of prime ministerial power, the rise of the prime minister's office, for example. Um, which now numbers in the hundreds um, as compared to what it used to be, which was you know, five or six different people. So we have seen growing power of the prime minister. That is trend number one, and that doesn't matter whether you're Trudeau, Mulroney, Gretchen, Martin, uh, etc., up into Stephen Harper. He didn't invent this. He has just taken full advantage of this. But it's the second trend that I think is more important, and that is of continuous minority government rule. We had minority governments elected in 2004, 2006, 2008. If we had one tomorrow, we'd have another minority government. And the reason for that is the rise of the Bloc Québécois. When the Bloc pulls away 40 to 50 seats every election, there's no way that you can get a majority government. It's going to be very difficult to do that math. Harper came very close in the, in the 2008 election. He still wasn't able to do that. Now, some of you may say, well, Jean Chrétien was there. Jean Chrétien won three straight majority governments with the bloc there. Yes, but Chrétien was dealing with the divided right. Right, so under the 1990s, you had the split between the Reform Canadian Alliance and the Progressive Conservatives, and that allowed the Liberal Party to win those majorities. So when we refer to Martin as a lousy politician because he won a minority, and Chrétien as a great politician, well, one of Chrétien's great achievements was, was timing. Um, and, uh, the, hey, I'd like great timing, too. <laughs> So we are in the midst of continuous minority governments. What does this mean? It means for a very destabilizing parliament and a lot of parliamentary games. The night of an election, when a minority is announced, speculation will begin, because I'm usually doing some of the speculation, on when the government will fall. Okay. And so you have this gamesmanship occurring in a minority situation, and you combine it with a very powerful prime minister. So the opposition parties can help to shape the legislative agenda. They control the committee structures. They have the ability of doing non-confidence votes and threatening the government. And the prime minister has a hammer. And he'll use that hammer when threatened. And I think the most explicit one, obviously, was 2008. That government was going to fall. Now, whether that was uh, the right thing to do or not to do, it was self-preservation by the government, and it worked. It also led Harper to modify a few things. This one 
he's caught in what he sees as a similar trap. He's, he's got this little embarrassment dealing with detainees, and he has uh, a growing obstinate liberal Senate, um, an unelected Senate. And this is a, a little sidebar I'd like to say, is, is, is Harper is uh, a supporter of an elected Senate, or at least he says he's an elected Senate. I don't think he really wants an elected Senate. Uh, his power would be even weaker if there was an elected Senate because he would be a minority Senate. His best thing is to be able to say it's those unelected liberal senators, okay, um, as opposed to unelected conservative senators who are naturally wiser. <laughs> so this is, and, and by the way, I think what has also benefited Harper is, is Jean Chrétien keeps giving and giving to the Conservative Party. Um, his first gift to the Conservative Party was leaving the sponsorship crisis to, to Paul Martin. Uh, his second gift, uh, I think, um, was his, his way he appointed senators. He was in power a lot of time, but he liked to appoint really old senators. He liked to appoint them in their late 60s, early 70s, okay, when the maximum retirement age is 75. And he did that so he could appoint more senators. The more senators you appoint, the happier you feel, at least for the people who get that great job. And so if he had, elect, or if he had appointed younger senators, we'd still have a liberal-dominated uh, Senate. So just a little sidebar on how Kretchen must have been a closet conservative supporter. <laughs> so what I see is proroguing and the demonstrations out there, and I think there was some legitimate anger, but also some real calculated anger is a symptom. It's not the problem. The problem is these two trends of prime ministerial power and continuous minority governments. So what's the solution? On the prime ministerial power, that's a lot tougher to find out what a potential solution will be. Uh, because of the, the focus that we have had, uh, no prime minister is going to be willing to unilaterally give up some of those powers. Um, I think removing some of the powers from the prime minister just are just too difficult to do. But the second side, about the minority governments, I think there is something we can do. And the first is to be a lot more politically mature. Minority governments are not unique to Canada. Okay? Minority governments are the norm throughout Western Europe. But they seem to handle themselves in, in better ways. Uh, for example, through formal coalitions. Okay. Um, there was outrage at the fact that the Liberals and the NDs and, and the Bloc were going to try to form a coalition in the government to rule. But that is the norm in, in many parliamentary democracies. Okay? You, and there's, in fact, a series of negotiations. Germany has a new coalition government led by Angela Merkel of the Christian Democrats right now. There is a 45-page document between her and the other parties, the Free Democrats in particular, uh, orchestrating who gets what post and, and et cetera. Okay. There was about a, a month delay between the election and the formation of this government while these negotiations occurred. Okay. Uh, we haven't reached that state yet. And part of the reason that we can't do that, once again, is the Bloc Québécois. Nobody, no party, can go into a coalition with a separatist party. Now, they say sovereignist, but they're a separatist party. Okay, it just, it just cannot be done. And so that hinders our ability to use uh, coalitions. The second thing we could do is actually come up with something called constructive non-confidence. Again, this is a, a German idea. And what Germany has is it allows non-confidence votes, 
but the government doesn't fall on it unless there is a, another group that has the capacity of governing afterwards. And so if we were to apply this to the Canadian circumstance, the, uh, the opposition parties could vote against a motion, a confidence motion, but it wouldn't lead to either an election call or the shifting of government unless they signed a binding pact and presented it to the Governor-General and said, we're willing to govern. If we did that, what that would do is it would prevent the governing party from using non-confidence motions as a political weapon, which Harper has, has used uh, in, in before by saying to uh, Michael Ignatieff last fall, okay, you want to bring down the government? Have, have you looked at the polls lately, uh, Mike? Do you want to bring this down? Do you want to have an election? Then you have to vote the way we want. Okay? Likewise, it can't allow the opposition parties okay, to use non-confidence as a uh, political tool. So I think that might be a way of, of leading to some maturity. And, and a third possibility is for our elected officials um, to grow up a bit and to spend less time on gamesmanship on the next election and focusing more on governing. And it's easy to blast, well, it's the MPs who are doing that. Well, then I would also have to criticize CBC, Global, CTV, Globe and Mail, Toronto Star, pretty much the entire media because they love the speculation too. They love talking about the horse race. You know, when is going to be the next election? Some have suggested, hey, how about fixed election dates? The United States has fixed election dates. The night of Barack Obama's uh, election victory in November of 2008 most of the network spent a fair bit of time talking about who the Republican nominee in 2012 was going to be. So it's not just fixed election dates aren't the magic bullet either. So somehow, whether it is through formal alliances, whether it is through ad hoc relationships between parties, whether it is through the mechanism of constructive non-confidence, whether it is through greater political maturity of our elected officials and of the public at large, we're going to see more and more of these prorogations because it's a powerful tool at the Prime Minister's disposal and he or she will use it. Okay? They may criticize it when they're in opposition, but when their backs are against the wall, they will use it. So that is kind of the message that I wanted to get off today. Um, it will allow you a bit of time over lunch to, to think about what I've said. Um, to find all sorts of ways of criticizing what I've said, uh, to find some other sidebars uh, for discussion. This is all good. And in half an hour, I'll come back up here and be grilled for half an hour. So uh, enjoy your lunch, and uh, I will see you back here in half an hour. Thank you.